I didn't know if there'd be anybody at church tonight or if everybody would be hunkered down trying to keep the germs out of their system. Anybody here had the flu already? Well, what are they all doing here tonight? <laughs> I'm telling you, people are dropping like flies uh, with it. And I came back from that trip as sick as I think I've been as an adult man. And uh, one of those deals, I had a premonition I was going to go over and get sick. And, and, you know, everywhere you go, every plane we were on, uh, there was not one person that was not sneezing or coughing or blowing their nose. And you just are sitting there thinking it's inevitable that I'm breathing all of this in. And uh, man, oh man, we got back on Tuesday evening. And uh, of course, Seth had been, he had to be treated uh, before we left. And so he'd been battling a bug before we left. It wasn't flu, but he'd been battling a bug before we left. And of course, um, not only am I on an airplane with him, but I'm rooming with him. And so, you know, you get to a place like Amsterdam, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Netherlands, but everything is narrow and tall. And so we were in a room, and Barlow had set us up in a double room, and the room uh, was smaller than, than my office. Uh, and so we had a double room, which meant it was two twin beds scrunched together against a wall. So my son and I were basically sleeping in the same bed, which was a, a real joy, let me tell you, especially when your son is hacking, coughing his head off all over you. <clears throat> so anyway, we get back and got back Tuesday evening, and I mean, Wednesday, it was Katie bar the door. And I'm telling you, I praise God, because if what I experienced on Wednesday had happened 24 hours earlier, it would have been the worst day of my life uh, on airplanes for, you know, 36 straight hours. And so I'm very grateful and uh, still in the process of wheezing and, and coughing. But the other stuff, thankfully, uh, has um, flown the coop. And so we're very grateful. I hope you stay well if you've not been sick. And I'm giving a bunch of fist pumps. I'm not shaking hands. I'm bumping fists, all right? So um, if you extend your hand this way, I'm liable to slap it out of the way. But I'll do it in Christian love. We're in Genesis chapter 6 for a few minutes tonight. At the end of our time together, we get the great privilege of ordaining a new deacon at Hillcrest. And so we're going to do that. Shannon Phillips is here tonight. Shannon, would you raise your hand? And his wife, Raina, is right here. She's the pretty one. And uh, would you all put your hands together for Shannon and Raina Phillips? <clears throat> newest addition to our deacon families, and we're going to take just a few minutes tonight. Uh, our ordained men are here, and many of them, and we're going to lay hands on them and, and pray for them and initiate them uh, into our deacon ministry, as well as recognize a couple of do, uh, new deacon emeritus uh, tonight, uh, which a deacon emeritus is a deacon that's uh, kind of like old and been around a long time. Amen. And they've earned it. And so we're going to recognize two of our guys that you'll obviously know. And we'll get to that here in just a few minutes. And so somebody make sure 
that I'm finished preaching by 7.15, okay? If I'm not done by 7.15, Bob, you can go get a tomato from Floyd and just kind of fire it up here at the stage, all right? Everybody ready to get in the Word this evening? Say amen. 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 Hey, by the way, uh, if you haven't heard, uh, you should know, we finished the year last year really strong. Amen. Did y'all see that? Did we get that word communicated? Uh, and I don't have those figures in front of me. It was somewhere around a couple hundred thousand over our revenue budget. Hill, Hillcrest does this every year. I'm on life support, sucking wind uh, for the last three weeks of the year. And then everybody starts writing checks uh, or sending it electronically or all that. And we always end up way over where we need, which is really great. Uh, so thank you for your faithfulness and for your goodness and uh, continued uh, blessing that you are to, uh, to our church. Genesis chapter 6. Last week, or last, um, yeah, last week, as I said, we, we got back to Pensacola. One of the things about traveling um, is this year we tried to travel really light. Namely, we went on a 10-day trip to Western and Southern Europe attempting to do it with a carry-on bag and a backpack. So we weren't going to check any bags, which worked until we got to Europe and found that their, their carry-on requirements are a whole lot more stringent than ours. It's got to be like a briefcase to carry it on. So we ended up having to check it. But I always carry a backpack. You can always get on the plane with a backpack. And I never go anywhere without my backpack because that's where all my survival kit essentials are. I always pack a change of clothes just in case they lose my luggage. I got clean underwear in there. Somebody say amen. I keep a toothbrush, toothpaste in there. Some essential toiletry items are in there. Usually have a snack bag in there just in case. Uh, So I have all kind of basic essentials that are in that backpack, all of my electronic uh, cables and cords and all that stuff I keep in there. That has become kind of essential <clears throat> for travel. And I keep my Bible in there. Usually a small uh, portable type Bible that I can uh, travel with. And so that's my survival kit when I travel. And the thing about it is I found that um, a survival kit is really necessary too as a part of your spiritual journey and mine because as we travel along spiritually in life, the world is a dangerous and unpredictable place. And you never know what's going to happen. So you better make sure that you have packed your survival kit, your backpack, your spiritual backpack with some spiritual reserves that are very important. And that's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes tonight from Genesis chapter 6. By the time we get to the 6th chapter of Genesis, what we find is radically different than what we've been studying for the last several weeks of 2017 in the Garden of Eden, which is this perfect, pristine, beautiful environment where, you know, Adam and Eve are walking with God in the garden and they're having great fellowship in a world before sin enters the picture. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, man, the world's gone mad. The world is totally out of control with the exception of one man. The world has totally forgotten about God. It really is an ugly picture. And what a contrast because when God did his work of creation, 
You've got God creating on these creation days. And then the Bible says at the end of each day, God saw that it was what? Good. Over and over again. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And then on the sixth creative day, God creates man. And God saw that it was very good. And so you have this beautiful picture of creation. And God is very pleased with what he's made. But now... We get to a new phase in Genesis, and things are different. It's like a football team that in the course of a, senior, a single year, and many of you have known sports teams like this, where a team won a championship one year, and then they had a bunch of players leave, and they fell to the bottom of the stats the very next year. And that's what's happened here in Genesis. The world has fallen from first to last. It's collapsed from something that God said was very good to something that is now virtually no good. Civilization has imploded, and God determines to take drastic action, and he's going to judge the entire world that at one time he had said was very good. Let's look at our text tonight, the first eight verses of Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Father, thank you for the power of your word. And as we spend a few minutes in it tonight, We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide, teach, instruct, mold, and shape us that we might live for Christ who died for us. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so what's happening tonight is we're beginning this, uh, what will amount to about a six-part study, the life of Noah. Everybody loves Noah. Noah is a favorite with the kids. Every adult I know loves Noah. And so we're going to look at the life of Noah for a little bit. And we love Noah because Noah was a survivor. And Noah knew how to get things done. And Noah was a man that was stalwart in his faith. But before we get there, what we're going to do tonight is kind of set the stage because these verses that we're looking at tonight are kind of transition verses because they're there to help us understand why God sent a worldwide flood to begin with, why was this worldwide judgment even necessary in the first place? And it also gives us a hint, I think, of some of the things 
that you're going to need to pack along the way in your personal survival kit if you're going to survive in a world that pretty much has gone crazy. And, of course, we know the world back then had gone crazy, but I think we'd all agree tonight that the world we're living in has kind of lost its moral compass altogether and gone pretty much off the rails. And so there are some things that we need to pack, and I'm going to give you three of them tonight. First of all, notice that in order to guard against compromise, you better pack a supply of integrity. That's the first thing you need in your backpack survival kit, an ample supply of integrity because the world's going to afford you all kinds of opportunities to compromise on what God says is clearly right. With respect to the human race during the days of Noah, there are a couple of very important things that are obvious here. One, you've got this dramatic increase in population. There's a population explosion going on, and with that population explosion comes a simultaneous increase in wickedness. And let me just say that throughout the ages, there, I think, has always been this corresponding relationship between those two things. As the population goes up, the increase in wickedness typically goes up. When fallen people uh, seek to fill this original command of the Lord to fill the earth and subdue it, and when they try to do that without the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God, what you have is a recipe for disaster. Because with an increase in population, comes an increase in sin, people born in sin. And with an increase in population comes an increase in opinion, an increase in knowledge, an increase in ambition, an increase in uh, competitiveness. And it just seems like the more advanced we become, the more wicked we tend to become. We have all these technological advances at our disposal. We live in a world of great scientific advancement, scientific achievement. And the bad part about that is it's made most people think that they're God and that they've got the answer and everything can be figured out by knowledge and everything can be understood by technology. And we have all of these great things at our disposal, but the more advanced we tend to become, the more evil we tend to become, the more dangerous we tend to become. And we've got all kinds of red sirens, warnings that are going off in the world today, genetic engineering. I mean, there's just all kinds of things happening and you can just hear the buzzers going off saying, beware, stop. There was a tsunami warning uh, just yesterday off the coast of Alaska when there was that eight point whatever earthquake. And I don't know if you've ever heard a tsunami warning. Brian Hicks was up there and he was talking about it. And so I went on YouTube and just typed tsunami siren. And that was the eeriest thing I'd ever heard. Man, if that thing went off in the night, I'd jump off the roof probably. It was eerie and it was weird and it was, but it was, you know, you knew something was bad wrong. And we've got that going on, I think, in the world today as we've become more advanced and as population is booming almost out of control. Well, in Noah's day, the lion's share of problem was brought about by intermarriage There's this unusual passage in here that relates to a certain group of men marrying a certain group of women. And the Bible says here in verse 2 that in this population boom, the sons of God. Now, who were they? I don't know. I don't know who they were. So don't write me any letters because I can't tell you. This is one of those great mysteries of the Bible. 
The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any as they chose. Well, there's been all kind of uh, surmising, page after page written by theologians, biblical commentators with respect to the identity of who these sons of God are and uh, sons of God are. It's a question that's open to interpretation. I don't really have time to delve into it deeply tonight. Because most of the time when I try to tackle these, within about five minutes, I get these glazed over looks. Because you can't land the plane anywhere. I think the most natural way to interpret this is just to see this as a specific class of human beings. These sons of God, I think, are the descendants of Seth. There is a godly line that comes from Seth, which is um, the child of Adam and Eve the third-born son of Adam and Eve, and he represents kind of the godly line descending from Adam. Cain's line is an ungodly line. And so you have this godly line represented by the sons of Seth, and these, I think, are the sons of God. And they are intermarrying with women who descended from the ungodly line of Cain. I think that's the most natural way to interpret it. And it fits well with this whole idea of unbiblical intermarriage, which always has to do with faith. When the Bible talks about mixed marriage, we, you know, for a long time, mixed marriage in our culture was a racial thing. But that's not mixed marriage in the Bible. Mixed marriage in the Bible is always a matter of faith. Do not be yoked together with what? Unbelievers, right? Doesn't have anything to do with red, yellow, black, and white. It has everything to do with what is the faith-based worldview of the person to whom you're intending to marry. If it's not a Christ-centered, gospel-centered, Bible-centered worldview, you have that worldview, you don't need to be marrying that person, period. And I think that this fits well with that kind of an understanding. And so you have a godly line intermarrying with an ungodly line, there are other interpreters, uh, interpreters that see these sons of man as some kind of angelic being. So you have a celestial being intermarrying with a natural being, uh, producing this whole new class of people. That's harder for me to get my arms around, and so I'm going to leave that to you. See what I mean by the glaze overlook? Many of you go, what is that? Well, you got to read the interpreters. But I think the natural way to read it is probably the best way uh, to read it. And what's important there is that this brought about just a, a boom in the population of ungodliness. There's a corruption of the human race that results through temptation and compromise. And this is the thing. You know, you got these godly guys marrying ungodly women And in a word, that's compromise with a capital C. And that's what I think is the most important thing that you can take away from this passage of Scripture. Spiritual compromise is always destructive to a society. I remember the story about a New York family that wanted to get out of the city, and so they bought a ranch out west. And this New York banker was kind of like Green Acres. You remember the, the Green Acres? Okay, he wanted to get out. He wanted to be a farmer. He particularly wanted to raise cattle. And uh, he was talking with a friend that asked him if he'd, if he'd finally settled on a name for his ranch. And the cattleman said, well, you know, I wanted to call it the Bar J. And my wife wanted to call it the Susie Q. And 
One of my boys wanted to call it the Flying W, and the other son wanted to call it the Lazy Y, and we never could agree on what the name was going to be, so we just compromised. And we ended up calling the name of our ranch the Bar J Susie Q Flying W Lazy Y Ranch. And the guy uh, asked him, well, how many cattle do you have? He said, well, I don't have any. And he said, well, what in the world happened? He said, well, when we tried to brand them, they all died. <laughs> None of them survived the branding. And that's, a, that's what happens a lot of times when you give in to compromise. And nothing's more corrupting to a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ than compromise. And nothing's more detrimental to healthy growth. And that's why you better be packing an ample supply of integrity in your spiritual backpack survival kit because these people played fast and loose with the truth until God had pretty much been totally edged out of their culture. And we're not far from that in the United States of America. And it's even worse in other parts of the world where God's hardly given a nod at all. Verse 5 is one of the most telling verses in the Bible. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and watch this, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I want you to circle that phrase, only evil continually. The New International Version says the inclination of the thoughts of his heart, I love this, was only evil all the time. Can you imagine only evil all the time. That's a statement of the radical, utter depravity of man. Now, I'm telling you, you can make that statement and apply that statement to a number of single individuals throughout history. I mean, when you think of anybody that you've ever known, I mean, I don't know of anybody that I've ever known that I would say, the thoughts and the inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time. You might say that about a Hitler or a Stalin or this guy over in North Korea who's evidently nuts. Just only evil all the time. But I mean, it would be difficult for me to tag anybody that I've ever known with that kind of a description. And yet this is the testimony of God who alone sees the human heart which is the seedbed of evil thoughts and behavior. You know, the Bible says that about all of us, really. The heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. The Bible, that's your heart that the Bible's talking about, apart from God. Now, God can transform it, but apart from God, really, that's all of us, self-centered to the core, deceitful, desperately wicked, and so we need to stop up a stock up on integrity when it comes to this Christian journey that we're on because the truth is we are not going to get very far without it with others or with God. So pack an ample supply of integrity in order to guard against compromise. Secondly, to guard against pride, pack a supply of repentance. <clears throat> I believe repentance is a daily discipline in the life of believer. We tend to we tend to think of repentance in terms of what we do initially in our walk with the Lord in order to come to Christ and be saved. The Bible teaches that there is no salvation apart from repentance. And it was Jesus' first word, repent for the kingdom of 
heaven is at hand. And so repentance is important at the beginning of our journey, but repentance is a daily discipline for a believer. I don't know about you, but I need to know that God has forgiven me every day of my life. And I'm pretty sure that there's not a day goes by that I don't commit a sin of some kind. And so repentance is not one and done. Repentance is a daily discipline that is to be coupled with our prayer time, with our communion with Christ. And what we have here following in verses 6 and 7 is a description of how God responds to the wickedness of creation. And it is a wickedness, by the way, that's fueled by one thing, and that is pride. Pride is behind all wickedness. Pride was behind the first sin in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned because of pride, because they believed that their way was better than God's way, not because they misunderstood God. They just didn't want to obey God. Well, that's pride. Pride is deceitful above all, the Bible says. And uh, it goes before destruction. And so uh, wickedness, in fact, let me just be very clear the, the scriptures here talk about wickedness and the wickedness of this ever-burgeoning culture. Don't let the word wickedness throw you off because we, we tend to apply wickedness. When we think about wickedness, that's something that we always apply to somebody else. But all in the world, Rick, Ray Stedman, who was a great pastor out in California for many years, defined wickedness as the absence of the life of God at work in human society. So whenever God's influence is refused, there you have the presence of wickedness. And whenever wickedness is present, it always grieves the heart of God. Look at verse 6 again. And the Lord, what's the next word? Regretted that he had made man on the earth. What a sad biblical statement. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to its heart. Now, the one positive that you can take from that is that it is when the Bible makes a statement that God was grieved in his heart, it's a statement really when you think about it, the positive way to twist it is that it's a statement of God's love for humanity. God was grieved because these were people that he loved. These were people that he created in his image. God didn't design his creation with this kind of rebellion in mind. And you don't grieve for those you don't love, right? Man, when you grieve over somebody, whether it be somebody that you've lost through death or somebody that's taken a a wrong turn in life and there's a separateness and your heart grieves because of that, when you grieve over somebody, it's because you love them, right? And that's the case with God. And yet God's love has been rejected here. And his patience has been abused here. And his offer of salvation has been spurned. His love has been ignored. And we have a creation that has just fallen from very good to no good. And whenever that happens, man, it just breaks the heart of God. And the same thing happens whenever any human being today keeps God at arm's length, pushes God away, refuses the love of God, refuses the mercy of God, refuses the kindness of God and the acceptance of God, and goes his own way, goes her own way, determined to do life on her own terms. It just breaks God's heart. 
Now, let me just say, don't get confused here because when the Bible says that God was sorry that he'd made man, what, what you don't need to take away is that God was somehow sitting on his throne and everything was hunky-dory and then centered the picture and God went, <laughs> what just happened? Do you know God's never surprised about anything? God's never caught off guard. God's not been surprised. And so when the Bible says that God grieved, it's not because that God was surprised as sometimes we are. I'm preaching a funeral tomorrow afternoon for the, one, uh, the mother of one of our precious members who went to bed one night fine and never woke up. And they were all blown away by that. And so they're grieving in part because of shock. Well, when the Bible says here that God grieved because of what man had done, it's not because of shock or because he's been surprised. This, this is a statement of pain. It's a statement of sorrow. God does have emotion. And God grieves because he's been cut to the heart. And he responds to the sin of humanity in the only way that he can. Remember, this is a setup as to why there was a worldwide flood. Because God has to respond to that rejection. He has to respond to that sin. He has to respond to that depravity in the only way that he can respond because of his holiness. He makes a decision to judge the world. And that's the only decision he can make. Because God's not like us, man. He's holy. So one thing God cannot do is gloss over sin. He's not going to wink at it. He's not going to chuckle at it. He's not going to laugh at it. He's not going to make jokes about it like we so often do. Sometimes we do that even in church circles. Even of those, you know, those things. We tend to categorize sin. Now, there's some, some sins we don't joke about. But then there are some we do. Because we put them down on, you know, we put them on the misdemeanor list. They're not felony. They're not felonious sin. They're a little misdemeanor sin, a little white lie, you know, half truth. Well, you know, he said this, and wasn't that a creative way to get out of that? You know, so we laugh at it, chuckle at it. Well, God doesn't do that. God doesn't play those games. If it's sin, God has to judge it. Why? Holiness. Holiness. God plays those games with sin. He ain't holy. So this glorified, holy God that we love and, and know and serve must judge sin. And that's what happens here in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out, <clears throat> which is not pleasant language. I'm going to take an eraser and just wipe them off. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals. For I am sorry that I have made them. Now, we live in a world that doesn't like that and wants to take an eraser and blot that out of the Bible and many other phrases like it because that doesn't fit with their caricature of God. Now, they're fine with God is love, but they're not so fine, the world, with God is holy. 
They're fine with God accepts, but they're not fine with God judges. But you need to understand the same Bible says God is love, says God is holy. And love and holiness with respect to God are two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. God is a God of love. And God is a God of acceptance. But not at the expense of glossing over sin. God has to judge sin. And of course we see that beautifully expressed in the gospel. God judges sin but he does it in love by sending a substitute to die in our place. That's holiness and love in action at the same time. And we call that obviously grace, which I'll talk more about here in a minute. And so God's holiness requires him to judge this evil, this sin. How many of you watched the Cosby show when it was on? The Cosby show on the 80s? Yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a great scene there where Cosby's character, Heathcliff Huxtable, is talking to his son. And, man, they're not finding agreement. They're butting heads, and I don't remember what it was about. And that's when he looks at him at one point, and he said, here's the thing. I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's basically the position of God. God, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. That's right. The author of life is the judge of life. And that's what God's saying here because he has the right to do that. And he must judge because of his holiness. He's offended by wickedness. He's grieved. And God makes a declaration here. Judgment is coming. So this is kind of a dark picture. Clouds are forming. It's foreboding. But there is a silver lining. There's a small crack that appears, glimmer of hope comes shining through, and that ray of light comes in the form of grace. So God's going to judge, but he's going to show grace. And see, this is love and holiness, two sides of the same coin in action. And this is the third thing to pack in your spiritual backpack survival kit. To guard against judgment, you better pack a supply of grace. Now, with this pronouncement of judgment comes the promise of a new day. And God's going to make a way of escape by calling one man who dared to stand out in a sea of compromise and human pride. And who was that one man that God's going to call? Who was it? Noah. Verse 8 is one of the most familiar verses in Genesis. But Noah found favor. In the eyes of the Lord. If you're here tonight using a King James Version, what's the word that it used? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Statler brothers used to have a song about that. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, And that's what grace said. Grace is, what is grace? Undeserved love, kindness, favor of God. Key emphasis, undeserved. Grace is God showing love where he should show judgment. And God's going to judge, but the beautiful thing is, in grace, God's going to provide an opportunity for escape. And that's what you have here with Noah. You have God giving this loving offer of salvation by his grace in the face of sin and judgment. 
And by the way, <clears throat> let me just remind everybody, this is not the first time we've seen the offer of grace in our study of Genesis. We saw it with Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve sinned. How did God have to respond to the sin? He had to respond with what? Judgment. And what was the punishment of Adam and Eve? Bob, you gave me the thumbs, right? That's right. You've got to leave the garden. But what did God do before he expelled them from the garden? He gave them a covering. That's right. That's a demonstration of grace. He, the first animal sacrifice in the Bible is God sacrificing an animal by grace in order to provide adequate covering for those even in the midst of judgment. Okay? He did the same thing with Cain. We saw grace even in the Cain narrative as dark and despicable as that is. God judged Cain. You murdered your brother. And before uh, God rejected Cain's offering, but not in totality, he gave him the opportunity to offer a sacrifice again, the right kind of sacrifice. And Cain wouldn't do it. So we've seen an offer of grace more than once already in the book of Genesis now, why did God choose Noah of all people? What was it about Noah? Well, we know Noah was a righteous man. So did God choose uh, Noah because he was righteous? I don't think he did. I don't think that hurt. But God did not choose and use Noah as a reward for anything that was uh, different about Noah, even though he was different. Uh, Noah found grace simply because God extended it to him. It was a sovereign choice of God in the same way that God called and chose Abraham. So God came to Noah by his spirit, called him to himself. Noah responded with faith and he lived a righteous, blameless life because of the grace of God. So get this down. Noah didn't find grace because he was blameless. Noah lived blamelessly because he'd found the grace of God. And when we get into Noah's life going forward, we're going to see how Noah becomes what the Bible calls in the book of 2 Peter, a preacher of righteousness. Noah's going to proclaim the gospel of God to this wicked generation, and he's going to do it for over 100 years. It's an amazing thing. And he's going to preach, and he's going to preach, and he's going to continue to preach while he's building an ark. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? 100 years, and Noah's preaching the whole time, proclaiming the gospel of God. Yeah, I got it. Thank you. Proclaiming the gospel of God. And uh, say again? Oh, no. I'm in full control of the clock. I've just not finished preaching. Somebody say amen. I finish when God says, not according to the clock. I set a goal, but I ain't done yet but I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Having said all of that, it's no different today. Population's booming today. We have great advances today. And man still thinks he's God today. And we could say that about most people. Thoughts and intents of their heart, only evil all the time. And we could say that because they're going away from God. 
And anytime you're away from God, that's the very definition of evil. You don't have to kill anybody to be evil. You just have to be ungodly. You have to reject God. That's the very definition of what it means to live an evil life. 